1 Peter chapter 2, we begin with verse 1. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. If so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner." Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 7. We know that the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I want to call your attention in particular to the beginning of verse 7 where we read these words, Unto you therefore which believe he is precious. Unto you therefore which believe he he is precious. Of all the authors of the New Testament, Peter stands out as the one who loves to emphasize the things that are precious. That word precious is utilized more by Peter than any other author. So while Matthew and Mark make reference to that precious ointment that was used to anoint the head of Christ while he sat at supper. And while Paul may make reference to gold and silver and precious stones that are used to build upon the foundation of Christ, and while James makes reference to the precious fruit of the earth as he calls on Christians to be patient the way husbandmen are as they wait for that precious fruit to grow. It's Peter that refers to the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes. That's in chapter 1. Or to the precious blood of Christ that unlike gold or silver has the value to redeem us or to Christ as a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, or to Christ as the chief cornerstone, elect and precious. You can carry the word study into his second epistle as well, as he makes reference in 2 Peter chapter 2, or chapter 1 actually, in verse 1, to like precious faith that has been obtained by believers by the grace of God. 
and to exceeding great and precious promises by which we as believers become partakers of the divine nature. You see how fond of that word precious uh, Peter is. The word precious in these references conveys the idea of being honorable or being very valuable or costly. When we think of something precious, we think of things that could never be replaced. They exceed in value everything we own. You couldn't assign a monetary value to them. They are more precious than anything that money could buy. And so when we think of things that are precious, we are taught in Scripture to assign a very high value to our own souls. Christ asks the question in Matthew 16 and verse 26, For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? There is nothing then more precious than your soul. All of the world doesn't come close to matching the value of a single soul. Your soul is your life. And often in Scripture, the soul stands for the entire person and not just his inner being. And yet your soul is fallen and your soul is defiled. And what's more, your soul is doomed on account of your sin. And no price from within this world could suffice to redeem your doomed soul. No amount of silver or gold could suffice to ransom your soul, for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. Peter writes in chapter 1 and verse 18. But then Christ enters the picture. He redeemed you by his blood. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. It's in chapter 1 and verse 19. Here is the one then, the only one, who is qualified and was able and willing to pay the price of his own blood to redeem your soul. It's no wonder then that Peter would write in our text in chapter 2 and verse 7, Unto you therefore which believe he is precious. And I'm wondering this morning, is he precious to you? Do you hold him to be that honorable? Do you hold him in that high esteem? Is he precious to you? Well, in preparation for our time around the Lord's table, I want to focus on that theme. Remembering Christ, a precious Savior. Remembering Christ, a precious Savior. Savior, Look at the words in chapter 2 and verse 4 and consider with me, first of all, that we see that Christ is precious to his Father. 
He is precious to his father. Whether anyone else in this world holds him in high regard or honor and esteem, he is held in very high esteem. He is precious to his father. And so the words in verse 4, to whom coming, and the reference there is to Christ, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Underscore those words, chosen of God and precious. These words indicate that because he was chosen of God, he was and is precious to God, to God his Father. Another translation reads this way, coming to him a living stone, rejected by men, but chosen and valuable to God. Chosen and valuable to God. The same version translates verse 6 this way, for it is contained in Scripture, Look, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So, valuable to God, a chosen and honored cornerstone. I don't know if we appreciate at times that our salvation is founded in the truth of God's esteem for his only begotten son. Samuel Davies, a preacher in America during the time of the Great Awakening, and the first president of Princeton University, had this to say of Christ's value to his father. He is infinitely precious to his father who thoroughly knows him and is an infallible judge of real worth. He proclaimed more than once from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Behold, says he, my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. Isaiah 42 and verse 1. He is called by the names of the tenderest endearment, his son, his own son, his dear son, the son of his love. He is a stone disallowed indeed of men. If their approbation were the true standard of merit, he must be looked upon as a very worthless, insignificant being, unworthy of their thoughts and affections. But let men form what estimate of him they please. He is chosen of God and precious. And shall not the love of the omniscient God have weight with believers to love him too? Yes, the apostle expressly draws the consequence. He is precious to God, therefore to you that believe he is precious. It is the characteristic even of the lowest believer that he is godlike. He is a partaker of the divine nature and therefore views things in some measure as God does. Oh, if we would conform our thinking to God's thinking, which is something, by the way, that we should ever be striving to do, then we must regard Christ as precious because his Father certainly regards him that way. 
I'll never forget a sermon I heard a number of years ago at a PRTS conference, Joe Beakey Seminary up in Grand Rapids, in which the theme of the conference was the glory of the Father. For successive years, the conference themes focused on the three persons of the Trinity, and that year the focus, this was the beginning of the series, and the focus was on the Father. The next year it was the glory of the Son, after that the glory of the Spirit. This was the very first in the series, that conference, and this particular preacher preached on the theme of the Father's love for his Son. He pointed out, and I don't remember the exact number he cited, but I do remember that he said you find no less than 200 references in John's gospel that speak of the father's love for his son or the son's love for his father. You can't begin to measure God's love for you until you have some measure of appreciation of the Father's love for his Son, because he sees you in his Son. So if you want to know how much he loves you, figure out how much he loves his Son. And you've got the the measurement. And even though the Father loved his Son, the Father gave his Son. That's really something to contemplate, isn't it? He gave his son. There's a mistaken notion that has floated around throughout the the history of the church that the father was uh, somehow uh, angry and reluctant to want to accept sinners, but that his, his son prevailed with him to accept them nevertheless, and nothing could be further from the truth. No, it is... God who loved his son, and you should keep that in mind when you read that very familiar verse in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So even though God loved his son, God gave his son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Something else in that sermon that I'd never heard before and uh, comes to mind again as I think of it now, and that was the connection that that preacher made between the love of God and the doctrine of hell. You don't usually think of those two things going together, do you? The doctrine of God's love and the doctrine of God's condemnation. How often have you heard it said that a loving God would never cast a soul into hell, for to do so would be a denial of his love? Not really, this preacher suggested. You just have to know where to make the connection. 
God loved his son, and yet God gave his son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So if God gave his dear son, his only son, the son of his love, and yet there be those that reject his son, who fail to believe in his son, what does God's love for his son demand that he do with those who nevertheless reject him, even though God loved him, but gave him anyway. What does God's love for his son demand when it comes to the willful Christ rejecter? Oh, his love for his son demands their just condemnation. So there is a connection between the love of God and the sinner's condemnation. You just have to know where to make the connection. But here around this table of the Lord, we're able to affirm by, by partaking of these elements that we believe that God gave his son and that we've received his son and that we believe in his son who gave himself for us. So do we conclude that because Christ is precious to his father, so is he precious to us as well. Note again the reasoning of the apostle when he cites Isaiah 42 and verse 1. Wherefore also what is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, unto you therefore which believe he is precious. And it's here around the Lord's table that we have occasion to pledge to God in the words of the refrain of a hymn that we sing, I do believe, I will believe that Jesus died for me, that on the cross he shed his blood from sin to set me free. So we remember Christ, the precious Savior, precious to his Father, and therefore precious to us. Well, let's move on to consider next that not only is Christ precious to his Father, but he's precious also to the angels of heaven. There's something we don't contemplate very often, do we? Christ is precious to the angels of heaven. Peter tells us earlier in this epistle, back in chapter 1 and verse 12, that the prophets of old searched the scriptures and they searched them, seeking to understand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. It seems that they saw both strands of truth in the Scripture, but it seems they had trouble figuring out how to reconcile those two strands of truth, Christ suffering and Christ glorified. And so in verse 12, we're told, that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, and then note the end of the verse, which things the angels desire to look into. It would seem then, wouldn't it, that the angels have an interest in salvation, even though it doesn't pertain directly to them. Samuel Davies, I quoted him earlier, 
He actually devotes more time and space to this subject of the angels regarding Christ as precious than he does to the Father's love for his Son. If you'll bear with me for a somewhat lengthy quote in which Davies really just conducts a Bible study about the angels' regard for Christ. He writes, Jesus is the wonder of angels now in heaven, and he was so even when he appeared in the form of a servant upon earth. Paul mentions it as one of the great, uh, or one part of the great mystery of godliness, that God was manifest in the flesh, seen of angels, 1 Timothy 3.16. Angels saw him and admired and loved him in the various stages of his life, from his birth to his return to his native heaven. Here the manner in which the angels celebrated his entrance into our world. One of them spread his wings and flew with joyful haste to a company of poor shepherds that kept their midnight watches in the field and abruptly tells the news of which his heart was full. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. Crowds of angels, it would seem, left their stations in the celestial court in that memorable hour and hovered over the place where the incarnate God lay in a manger. Jesus, their darling, was gone down to earth, and they must follow him, for who would not be where Jesus is? Men, ungrateful men, were silent upon that occasion, but angels tuned their song of praise. The astonished shepherds heard them sing, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. When he bringeth his firstborn into the world, the Father saith, Let all the angels of God worship him. Hebrews 1, 6. This seems to intimate that all the angels crowded around the manger where the infant God lay and paid him their humble worship. We are told that when the devil had finished his long process of temptations after 40 days and had left him, the angels came and ministered unto him. It's in Matthew 4.11. When this disagreeable companion had left him, that is the devil, his old attendants were fond of renewing their service to him. In every hour of difficulty, they were ready to fly to his aid. He was seen of angels in his hard conflict in the Garden of Gethsemane, and one of them appeared unto him from heaven, strengthening him. We read in Luke 22 and verse 43. With what wonder, sympathy, and readiness did this angelic assistant raise his prostrate Lord from the cold ground, wipe off his bloody sweat, and support his sinking spirit with divine encouragements. But, O ye blessed angels, ye usual spectators and adorers of the divine glories of our Redeemer, with what astonishment and horror were you struck when you saw him expire on the cross. 
Try to picture that scene. Christ himself had said that he could call on legions of angels to come rescue him should he desire that to happen. Can you imagine those angels in heaven in the ready mode anticipating that Christ would indeed call on them to deliver him from such atrocities? They also hovered round his tomb while he lay in prison of the grave. The weeping women and his other friends uh, found Christ stationed there in their early impatient visits to the sepulcher. Oh, what wonders then appeared to their astonished minds. Could you that pry so deep into the secrets of heaven, you that know so well what divine love can do, could you have thought that even divine love could have gone so far? could have laid the Lord of glory, a pale, mangled, senseless corpse in the mansions of the dead. Was not this a strange surprise even to you, O you angels? And when the appointed day began to dawn, with what eager and joyful haste did ye roll away the stone and set open the prison doors that the rising conqueror might march forth. When he ascended on high, he was attended with the chariots of God, which are 20,000, even thousands of angels, Psalm 68, verses 17 and 18. And now when he is returned to dwell among them, Jesus is still the darling of angels. His name sounds from all their harps, and his love is the subject of their everlasting song. John once heard them, and I hope we shall ere long hear them saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Revelation five eleven and 12. This is the song of angels as well as of the redeemed from among men. Oh, my brethren, Davies goes on to say, could we see what is doing in heaven at this instant? How would it surprise, astonish, and confound us? Do you think the name of Jesus is of as little importance there as in our world? Do you think there is one lukewarm or disaffected heart there among 10,000 times 10,000 of thousands of thousands? Oh no, there is love. Love is the ruling passion of every heart and the favorite theme of every song. And so is he precious to the angels, to angels who are less interested in him and less indebted to him. And must he not be precious to poor believers bought with his blood and entitled to life by his death? Yes, you that believe have an angelic spirit in this respect, you love Jesus, though unseen, as well as they who see him as he is, though, alas, to a far lesser degree. So you have Samuel Davies. What a challenging example set for us by those who are, say, are not even directly affected by salvation, but are nevertheless so drawn to it because of the way it displays God's glory. 
May we rise to their level of devotion and see Christ as all the more precious to our souls. So we've seen how Christ is precious to his Father, and now we've seen how he's precious even to the angels of heaven. Let's consider, finally, how he's precious to our souls. He is precious to our souls. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. I said in my introduction that when something is precious, you could say that it's rare. There's nothing else like that precious thing. It's irreplaceable and it's beyond calculation in terms of its value. That certainly describes Christ, doesn't it? There's no one like him. He is unique. How could he not be since he is the only person that could ever be described, named Emmanuel, meaning God with us, God come in the flesh? His value as a person comes by virtue of his deity. And so we must ask then, when you're thinking of the value of Christ, well, how precious is God? What kind of value can you assign to the very person that created you and created the sun and the moon and the stars and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea? What kind of value can you assign to one who by the power of his word brought this vast universe into existence? Surely he's precious by virtue of what he's created. And I would remind you that all things were created by him and for him. And he is above all things and by him all things consist. And he's precious by virtue of his purpose and plan to redeem man from his estate of sin and misery. He had a purpose of bringing glory to his name even before man fell into sin. And so he is called in Revelation the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, which means that before there was a foundation laid for this world, in the creation of this world, there was already a plan from eternity past in which Christ would be slain to save those that believe in him. He's precious because he's sinless. Pilate could find no fault in him. He did no sin. He knew no sin. And in him was no sin. He is altogether holy. And we can hardly fathom that. What does it mean for a man to be sinless, especially in a world that is filled with sin? He is precious because of his willingness to love us all the way to Calvary's cross. I love the text in John's Gospel, chapter 13 and verse 1. We read, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world he loved them unto the end. Isn't that a remarkable statement? Having loved his own which were in the world, 
He loved them unto the end. The end, of course, being the end of his life. On Calvary's cross, he loved them all the way to Calvary's cross. There's a hymn. It's not actually found in our hymn book. I was kind of surprised by that. Maybe it's there and I just can't find it. That wouldn't surprise me. But anyway, there's a hymn that asks the rhetorical question, What wondrous love is this, O my soul, O my soul? What wondrous love is this, O my soul? What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, for my soul, to bear the dreadful curse for my soul? Oh, he is precious in his condescension, willing to leave a holy environment where all was peace and bliss, where he knew his Father's love in pure and uninterrupted communion with him. He would leave that in order to take to himself a true body and a reasonable soul and enter into a world that would despise and reject him and in its hatred and rejection of him would nail him to a cross. Samuel Davies elaborates on how he is precious in each of the offices he bears as our mediator. I won't take the time to read that extensive quote to you, but I would call your attention to the simple truth that he's precious as our prophet, declaring to us the truth of God and the truth of sin and the truth of salvation by grace through faith in him. And he's precious in his office as our high priest, satisfying divine justice for us by the offering up of himself and in making continual intercession for us. And he's precious as our king, ruling over us, subduing and defending us against all his and our enemies. And he'll be precious when he returns and consummates redemption and brings in a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness will prevail. Oh, aren't you anxious for that very time to come? And doesn't the truth, the scriptural truth of that make Christ precious to you? Won't he be precious to you when he openly acknowledges you as his own and you become perfectly conformed to him when you see him as he is and you're made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God forever? How precious will Christ be on that occasion? And so I wonder then this morning, is he precious to you? Is there anyone like him whom to know is life everlasting? Do you find his blood to be precious blood? Do you view his promises of everlasting life and sins forgiven and a home in heaven? Do you view those as precious promises? If he's precious to your soul, then this table is for you. Here is where you're afforded the opportunity to say to him that he is indeed precious to your soul. Let's remember him then, not only as our Savior, but as our precious Redeemer and King.
unto you, therefore, which believe. He is precious. Let's close then in prayer before we distribute the elements. Let's all pray. O Lord, as we bow now in thy presence, we do confess that there was none like our Savior. There was none like Jesus. There is no religious ruler that can be compared to him. For there is no one who can do what he did. We thank thee, Lord Jesus, for thy willingness to shed thy blood that we might be redeemed. And we know from thy word that the life of the flesh is in the blood and that in the shedding of thy blood, therefore, there was a pouring out of thy life as an atoning sacrifice pleasing to thy Father that could accomplish our salvation. O Lord, we pray that thou wilt help us in increasing measure to recognize how precious thou art to thy people. And we thank thee now for the privilege that is ours of pledging to thee our belief that thou art indeed the Savior of sinners and that thou art precious to our souls. So, Lord, draw near to us now, we ask of thee. In Jesus' name, amen.